You're listening to the Galatians Spying Out Our Liberty in Christ series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. I think it's just crazy when we start making these claims that are against Scripture. I want to ask, what else is there? If we don't have the Bible and if the Bible's not true, then what, what is there? What do we have? You know, the reason that our church thinks that the Bible is so important, the reason we focus on it, the reason that's where we're getting everything from, is because if, if we don't, do you know what you're left with? A couple of morons. I'm not even, I'm not even kidding. I mean, compared to the, the, the truth and the knowledge that's out there, you don't have much to go on. And so we better have the truth, because if not, we're in big, big trouble. And so that's why we believe the Bible's true. That, that's why we follow that. That's why we preach it. He ended the article talking about what we need is not the Bible. What we need is divine consciousness. Divine consciousness outside of biblical revelation is as real as an imaginary friend. You make him up. You make him to be whatever you want him to be. And then you tell everybody else is real. (laughs) Doesn't make him real, right? We have the word. We have the word made flesh. That is the revelation of God to us. And so we should trust it. We should build our lives on it. So, here we are at the end of the book of Galatians. And uh, it's funny that Paul here in the entire book of Galatians, it seems like there are false teachers that are driving him nuts as well. That he's just so infuriated by these Judaizers who have come and hijacked the churches that he started, hijacked the churches of Christ, the churches that were built on the foundation of the gospel, by trying to change the gospel, by adding to the gospel, by trying to change the word of God. They're acting as though Jesus needs a PR makeover. For them, in their culture, he needed to be more Jewish. And as Christians, you need to be more Jewish. In our culture today, you just need to be more liberal. But it's the same thing. This is exactly what Paul has been dealing with. He started these churches, he gave them the truth, he rejoiced in their growth, and then all of a sudden, these liars from Jerusalem that had degrees and they had important titles came and they started teaching them all different things about what the gospel truly is. So this evening we will draw this incredible book to a close. I want to begin reading back in verse 11, chapter 6, and then we'll focus tonight on verses 15 to 18. Verse 11 says this, You see how large a letter I've written unto you with mine own hand. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh... They constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves, who are circumcised, keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised, that they may glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. This is Paul's statement of purpose. This is what his life is about, to glory in the cross. We look at all of Paul's writings, and what we see over and over again, what drove Paul was just his constant gaze at the cross of Christ. We see that in Galatians 2, verse 20, he said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, but yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
constantly. That's what he did. I, it's not even my life anymore. It's the life of Christ in me because Christ loved me so much that he gave himself for me that my life is now about him. He talked in the book of Corinthians about his preaching. In 1 Corinthians 1.17, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. And again, it's, it's not about religious things. He sent me to preach the gospel, preach the cross. And it, he said it in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, about his ministry. He said, But none of these things move me, neither count I, count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. He lived his entire life to glory in the cross, to point to the cross, to point to the gospel. The cross affected how he viewed Jesus, how he viewed the world. He looked at the world and it was as, as a man on the cross for him. And it affected how he viewed himself and how he was willing to have, let others view him. It changed everything. And so in verse 15, he gives the reason for all of this. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. Paul is so passionate about the cross because he understands that salvation is a divine accomplishment. It is not human achievement. It's not what he can do. It's not what he has done. It's everything that Christ has done. And so when he looks at his life and he looks at his life in light of eternity... All he can ever focus on is the cross, because that's what, what accomplishes salvation. It's everything to him. It's the only thing that works. Verse 16. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy, and upon the Israel of God. Now this verse here is packed with truth. So what I want to do is kind of dissect this verse part by part. He begins in verse 16 saying, as many as walk. Now, here he could be referring to everybody. It seems in the context he's referring specifically to the Gentiles who are new creatures. Right? Because the entire book has been centered around these Judaizers who are coming to these Gentiles trying to convince them to be proselytes, trying to convince them to live by Jewish laws in order to be saved. And now he says, as many, speaking about those, those Gentiles, that have, they're trying to convince them. He's saying, as many of those that live by this rule... That walk according to this rule, peace be upon them, and mercy upon the Israel of God. Now, the rule here, what is that? Well, the word rule is canon, and it, it's literally a measuring rod. And so the irony here is that here you have these Judaizers that are trying to set up all of these laws. right? They're trying to, to set up a program where you can check different boxes, and once you've checked off enough boxes, once you're Jewish enough, you've kept the law enough, then that combined with your faith will equal salvation. And he says, no, 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 that, that is ridiculous. The only measuring rod, the only rule we need, is what he just spoke about, and that's the cross of Christ. Why? Because the cross is the only thing that works. Uncircumcision, circumcision doesn't mean anything. It's all about the cross of Christ. And so that is the only rule that matters. We look at what Paul wrote, and we see... I think this principle very clearly. There is the importance of orthodoxy, the importance of getting the truth about the gospel right. But I think when we see what he's written here about walking according to the rule, we also see the importance of orthopraxy. These two things should always go hand in hand, and when they do, it's a beautiful thing. You, have, you need to have your doctrine right, but notice what he says in verses 14 and 15. 
He says, but God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. He points to his life and how he wants to live and what his goal is. And then he says, and the doctrine is, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. So I think you combine those two things, that I'm going to live looking at the cross, I'm going to live for the glory of, the, of Christ, and I'm going to believe that it's only by Christ, and you put those two things together, and you have the rule that, that Christians walk by, that they live by. So it's not just believing the right thing. And, and again, I, this week, I guess it was a week of blog posts, but... Um, I read another great post this week, and the, the author was asking the question, how many times do we need to hear in church about what Jesus wants us to do before we realize that we have a responsibility to actually go out and do it? See, Christians, we fill our heads with knowledge, and we come here, and we, we get encouraged, and we get comforted, and then we sometimes leave this place, and there's no spending our lives for the glory of Christ. We know all about him, we know all about how deserving he is and how wonderful his atonement is, and we can say things like the substitutionary atonement of Christ, and we know what they mean. If you know what that means, that's, that's a cool thing. But how often do we actually allow that to change how we live? How often do we truly show the love of Christ? How, do we, how often do we point people to Jesus in our lives? Tozer said, heresy of method may be as deadly as heresy of message. How we do things, how we live our lives, can be just as bad as believing the wrong things, as teaching the wrong things. Our method and our message is important, and for Paul, his method and his message was all about Jesus. It was never about us, because in Christ, we are new creatures. In Christ, we live and dwell and have our being. In Christ, we are complete. In Christ, we can grow and bear fruit to the glory of God. And so he says in verse 15, sorry, verse 16, that as many as walk according to this rule, peace be upon them and mercy and upon the Israel of our God. And part of the reason I think that he's referring to the Gentiles that are saved at the beginning of verse 16 is because he says at the end of the verse, and upon the Israel of God. And so we ask the question, who is the Israel of God? And there are many scriptures that help us to understand that. Um, it, it does imply this, that there is an Israel that is not of God. And so how do we determine who the Israel of God is? In Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, he says, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are children of Abraham. It's those that, are, that have faith that are children of Abraham. And then in Romans chapter 9, verse 6 to 8, it explains that not all those who are born into Israelite families are true children of Abraham. That it's only those who are children of the promise that is by faith. And so Jesus said in, in John chapter 4, verse 23, when, she's speaking, when he's speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well, he said, The hour comes and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship him. We look at the Bible and we see that, that there is an Israel that is of God and an Israel that is not. And the difference is here is by faith. And this was the whole problem with these Judaizers. They were the Israel that was not of God. They were not of promise. And so he says, on those who walk by the rule, who are of the Israel of God, that they have mercy and they have peace. This peace is knowing, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you are right with God. 
And you think about that. If you are one of those who are trusting, at, even in the slightest amount, in your goodness to save you, how could you ever know that you have peace with God? How could you ever know that you've done enough? How could you ever know that, that you've kept enough of the law to be one of those ones who, who, who have enough faith and enough works to be saved? The wonderful thing about the Bible is that God wants us to know, right? First John is all about that, that you may know that you are sons of God. And, and the message to the Christian is, now that you are sons and you know you are sons, live, live like it. We know we have peace with God, and that brings us great peace. And we have mercy. We will not get what we deserve. Verse number 17. From henceforth, let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And what a statement that Paul makes there. From this point forward, let no one trouble me. Let those false teachers shut their mouths. It's a a cool contrast here in verse 17 from what he said in verse 12. Because remember when when he was speaking about the false teachers, he said, as many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh that they constrain you to be circumcised only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. So here you have the false teachers who are scared to suffer persecution, who are teaching things to avoid suffering persecution. And then Paul says, let those people shut their mouths because I bear on my body the marks of Jesus Christ. And when he says that, he's not speaking metaphorically. He's saying physically, if you were to, to take my shirt off and look at my body, you know what you'd find? You'd find scars. You'd find scars that have proven my love. And do you know what the Galatians know? The Galatians know that in the four cities that he went to, in each of those cities, when he started those churches, he was beaten. He was tortured. He was persecuted. He was stoned. He was left for dead. He didn't get out of one of those cities unscathed. And then what he did after he went to those four cities is that he returned the same way to encourage the churches that he had started in those cities. What an incredible testimony of his belief that he knew that it was all about Christ. And so he says, my body shows the marks of Jesus Christ. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 11, Paul is making a very similar argument. He takes a lot more time to make this argument in 2 Corinthians. He's dealing with, again, false teachers who present themselves as the apostles or the messengers of Christ. And in verse 18, he says, Seeing then that many glory after the flesh, I will glory also. And, and he's saying here, it's not my, my goal to boast in myself or to boast about my flesh, but seeing that all of these guys seem to be doing it for themselves, let me just give you a little bit of my track record of being an apostle of Christ. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 22 to 28, I want you to really pay attention to these verses. This is what Paul went through. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths often. Of the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes, save one. I mean, Stop there for a second. Of the Jews, 39 times 5. 195 times 
He was whipped. He was beaten. And so when he's talking about the scars on his back, we're talking about 195 scars that would be left as he's beaten and tortured. I mean, people died from this type of beating. Verse 25. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and in painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside those things that are without, beside all that that I've just mentioned, that which comes upon me daily, the care of all churches, beside all of that painful suffering that I've endured for my preaching of the cross, I also have all of the weight of these churches and all of their burdens on me. You want to talk about a guy who suffered, who bears the marks of Christ? It's the Apostle Paul. And so he's able to say, look at my life. Look at what I've gone through. Look at my scars. Now shut your mouth. Verse 18. Paul closes his letter. He says, Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Conclusion of this letter, Paul draws their attention once again to what it, re- it needs to remain upon. It's the grace of Christ. And notice he says, the grace of Christ be with your spirit. Right? He's, he's trying to help them understand the entire time that this is all about their spirit and the spirit of God. It's not about what they're doing with their physical body. So he says, the grace of Christ be with your spirit. Amen. He does not end the letter like he does many others. Many other letters, he's very generous and kind and gracious. Many other letters, he gives salutations to friends. In this one, he doesn't. He doesn't pass on messages. He doesn't drag out words of affection. He, he concludes the, the letter very much like he started, very abruptly. Um, but, but Paul has a purpose. He has a mission for this church. And he is deeply worried and hurt by what's going on here. And if Paul cared that much about it, I, I know we ought to as well. He shines a light on Jesus, and then he says goodbye. Now, last week, when we looked at our application, we focused on how Paul describes the false teachers. If you remember, they were pretentious, they were cowardly, they were hypocritical, they were arrogant, and they were unbiblical. That's what we saw Paul as he described them. And here, I think in a very subtle way, he is contrasting those false teachers and himself as a true minister of Christ. And all of this is possible because Paul lived out what he said he believed. And so what was obviously different between the false teachers and Paul was their lives, was how they lived. You could tell that Paul was a true follower, a true minister of Christ, because his life was so different. It wasn't pretentious, it wasn't hypocritical, it wasn't cowardly, it wasn't arrogant, it wasn't unbiblical. And so we said last week that, that those characteristics, the opposite of those characteristics, should mark all ministers of Christ. Well, here's the thing. It is doubtful that as a minister of Christ, and I'm not just speaking about ministers, I'm speaking about any servants of Christ, you as disciples of Christ, it's very doubtful that any of us will ever suffer physical persecution for Christ. 
I know there are some people in North America that have, but it's very, very rare. I know that there are many people all around the world that do, that suffer just very similarly to the way Paul did. But we won't. And so we'll never be able to make that statement, look at my body, it bears the physical marks of Jesus Christ. But I was thinking about that, how Paul was able to point to his body, and I thought, you know what? What was it that truly caused Paul's abuse? I mean, why could he point to those scars? And the reason he could point to scars is because he was so devoted to sharing the message of Christ. His belief that Jesus was alive and would one day judge the world could not be questioned. He was willing to suffer greatly for it. His conviction that Jesus was the only way, the only truth, and the only life was abundant in the way he lived. And so that's why he was persecuted. His understanding of the gospel, that it was by faith alone in the finished work of Christ, apart from any works of man, was so definitive in his life that people beat him and tortured him for it. And so, yes, it might be true. There, might, there likely will never be a time where somebody understands what you believe of the gospel and then beats you for it like they beat Paul. But can I tell you something? If you lived back when Paul did, they should. They should want to. And so if, if you were to, to just survey your devotion to the gospel, if you were to, to maybe take a look at your life and say, let's say I was living my life and, and I had this devotion to the gospel and this devotion to the truth and, and this, this was my belief and this is how I lived it out. If you took me and planted me back in the first century, could I say that I bear in my body the marks of Jesus Christ? I mean, could I say that there are people that have persecuted me? Or maybe it's just silly for us to think back like that. Maybe we should just ask the question, am I devoted to sharing the gospel? Do I really believe that Jesus will one day judge? Do I believe he's alive? Is my understanding of the gospel such that I believe that it's by faith alone that, that, that anybody will ever know Christ, that it's apart from any of their works, and I believe this so greatly that it changes my life? If we ask that question of ourselves, am I devoted to the truth like Paul was? I can't imagine any of us answering yes. That's an unfortunate statement. Because Paul lived in a time where they're going to beat him for it, and we don't. We live in a time where we have more freedom to speak the truth than Paul did. And yet we're so much more cowardly than Paul. And listen, I'm including myself in all this. So much more cowardly than Paul. Just, I don't know, Our persecution might be others thinking we're not as smart, others looking down on us, others thinking we're silly. Um, Maybe less people will talk to us at work. Yeah, there's there's persecution. I'm not trying to minimize all of that. Those Those are hard things to go through. We all have this desire to be loved. But listen, he was so devoted to it that that you could physically see the marks in his body. But the physical marks only came after his character was there, and his beliefs were there. And so those characters, that character that was in Paul, those beliefs that were in Paul, should be the same character and the same beliefs that mark every Christian. So when we talk about the marks of Jesus, I don't think it's, it's helpful, maybe, to, to compare ourselves to Paul and say, have I been hated as much as Paul? But I do think it's helpful for us to say, do I bear the marks of character that Paul had? Do I love Christ like Paul? Was I passionate about the gospel? 
did I really believe what Paul believed? If we do, it should change us. See, persecution was normal and expected by the early church. And it seems like that's why the, the epistles, you look at all the epistles, it focuses so much on suffering. And somehow, we've been deceived into thinking, thinking that, that this life, it's all about having our best life now. It's all about what is Jesus going to do for me in this life that's going to make me happier and healthier and wealthier than my neighbor. It's not what it's all about. We glory in the cross. We glory in a man who is crucified. We shouldn't expect less. The wonderful thing is that as Paul was beaten and as he went through all the sufferings, you read what he wrote and you find one of the most joyful men you could ever imagine to meet. Most kind and loving men. And so Paul had joy. Paul had everything that, that we're searching for. He just found it in a different place. There are many things that might be fun to live for. I was talking to a guy just this afternoon, and he was t- telling me about how he had done so many things with his life that were fun at the time. And he was so, I mean, at the point of suicide, because everything he had accomplished and everything that he had done in his life had equaled nothing, that it was a waste of time, that it was all meaningless. There are a few things that might be fun to live for, but there are very, very few things worth dying for. And living your life for the gospel, for the glory of God, it is one of the things that it is worth dying for. It's obviously worth living for. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that he has saved me for eternity. Now I will live this life for his glory, proclaiming his message. All of that makes complete sense, doesn't it? It all flows. It all follows. So why don't we do it? When I pray in the evening with my kids, one of the things that we often say, and they've started saying, is, Lord, help us to live in a way that makes you happy. Lord, I pray that my life tomorrow, how I live tomorrow, will, will be in a way that makes you happy. When you think about it, those are, those are massive words to say. I mean, can you imagine the God of the entire universe? Seven, almost eight billion souls on the planet now. Making that God happy. Do you know that when we live our lives to glorify God, when we live our lives in pursuit of um, his desire for us, in pursuit of the cross, that we do make God happy, that we please him, you know, you can please your heavenly father who died, his son died for you. It's an incredible, incredible thought. C.S. Lewis said this. He says, to please God, to be a real ingredient in divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in his son. It seems impossible. A weight or a burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. What an incredible thought. You can leave this place and please God. Paul did. His body proved it. His life was the proof. Let us believe the right thing about the gospel. And then then let us live the right way. Because heresy of method may be as deadly as heresy of message. 
And so leave this place this evening asking this question. Does my life bear the marks of the Lord Jesus? Your body may not, but your life ought to. Let's pray.